Bow with me in prayer. You are obviously here, oh God, and since you're here, do something. Open your word to our hearts. Open our hearts to your word, but not just so we know stuff, but that we do stuff in partnership with you. In Christ's strong name we pray. Amen. You may be seated. Just a minute, we're going to look at the fifth passage, the fifth in a series of messages that we've been preaching in fall kickoff for um, All In. But before I get to that, a few people called or emailed at the end of the week or even said something to me this morning about, are we doing anything about Hurricane Florence? And I have a friend, I don't know if you remember, the person who did my installation service when I arrived, Gary Stratman, his son, Nate, is a church planting pastor in Wilmington, North Carolina. I've been in contact with him, and there'll be needs and ways for them to help. And then through our finance office, we were able to identify five churches in the North Carolina and South Carolina area who gave us money after Harvey. And we thought we would uh, try to return the favor to them. So during the offering today, if you want to direct things especially to Hurricane Harvey, put that on the memo of a check or put that in an envelope for cash. And so above and beyond your normal uh, pledging or tithing, uh, we hope you'll give uh, toward Florence as people gave to us. You know how important it is. Uh, today we want to look at what it means to be all in in the last way. We've been thinking about what it means to be all in regarding Christ, what it means to be all in in community, what it means to be all in in a body. But part of being all in means being all out. And so let's look at Luke chapter 19, verse 1 through 10. The 10th verse is Jesus' mission statement while he was on earth. Let's look. He... Jesus entered Jericho and was passing through it. A man was there named Zacchaeus. He was chief tax collector and was rich. He was trying to see who Jesus was, but on account of the crowd, he could not because he was short in stature. I remember studying this in seminary, at least in the Greek, and the he was short in stature doesn't really have an antecedent, so we don't know if it's Jesus or if it's Zacchaeus. But because we never hear anywhere else that Jesus was short... We assume it's Zacchaeus. So he ran ahead and climbed a sycamore tree to see him because he was going to pass that way. When Jesus came to the place, he looked up and said to him, Zacchaeus, hurry and come down, for I must stay at your house today. So he hurried down and was happy to welcome him. All who saw it began to grumble and said, he's gone to be the guest of one who is a sinner. Zacchaeus stood there and said to the Lord, look, half of my possessions, Lord, I'll give to the poor, and if I've defrauded anyone of anything, I'll pay back four times as much. Then Jesus said to him, today, salvation, the Greek is wholeness, relationship with God and with other people and with yourself, has come to this house because he too is a son of Abraham. He's one of us, even though he doesn't behave that way, and, and we're one of him, even though we haven't behaved that way toward him. And here's the mission statement, 10. For the Son of Man, Jesus is talking about himself, came to seek out and to save the lost. Here ends our reading for this morning. God always blesses the reading and the hearing of God's Word. What happens to the brain when you're in a tough situation? When you're trying to get from A to B, 
but you're dinged by defeat or you're stuck in failure. You're in some company and part of the policies and procedures ask you to do something that you feel you shouldn't do or you're around a toxic person and you can't get away from their toxicity unless you completely extricate yourself from that situation. Henry Cloud, who's a clinical psychologist, has written about this idea that the brain goes through a predictable pattern of negative associations when it's in the midst of a situation that's out of our control. He says we experience three Ps. The first one is we take what is not personal and we make it personal. Say you're a businesswoman and you're trying to make a sale and you've gone to a company and you ask them to buy this product and they say no and you say, it's me, it's my fault. You don't say too often, well, maybe they just didn't need the product now. Maybe it's not the right time for them to add the product. No, you say, it's all about me. You could be a child in a family looking for love from a mom or a dad, and if you don't get it that exact way in that exact moment, you say, I'm worthless. I'm unlovable. You see the idea. P, the first one, is we take what doesn't have to be personal and we make it personal. The second negative thing that goes into our mind when we're in a situation beyond our control is we make it pervasive. We say it's, they just don't want one product that I offered. They don't want any of the products. And I'm going to get a no, not just from this client, but from all the clients. It's not just one man that was a jerk. It's all men that are jerks. It's not just one woman who mistreated me. It's all women that are going to mistreat me. It's not just one church that's bad. It's all churches everywhere that are bad. We take something that's local and we make it global, pervasive. And the final P, which is the death knell, is we make it permanent. We say this isn't a random one-time situation. It's never going to get better. It's always going to be this way. It's never going to improve. It's never going to get whole again. Have you ever seen that kind of downward spiral in someone else's life? Have you ever experienced it in your own life? I mean, Zacchaeus was right in the middle of that kind of downward spiral until Jesus got him out of it. He was going down until Jesus brought him out. We tend to judge ourselves by our appearance, by our achievements, by our you know, connections with other people, by our affluence, by our wealth. By those standards, Zacchaeus was a failure in the first three. He was only succeeding in the last one, but it wasn't making him happy. This text starts out in verse 3 by saying Zacchaeus was small in stature. The Greek literally means he was insignificant. He was a little man. There's a couple uh, translations of the Bible that say he was a little person. I don't think probably he was a little person, but he was smaller than the average of his day. That's why he was up in a tree trying to get a good glimpse of Jesus. And the text goes on to say he was a tax collector, not just any tax collector, he was chief tax 
collector. The Romans were very smart. When they conquered a people, they didn't have Romans collect the taxes for the conquered people. They got someone of the conquered people to to collect the taxes from the conquered people. And so that person who was a tax collector was a turncoat, was hated, and often they would charge more than what the Romans told them they had to charge, and then they'd pocket the difference. So Zacchaeus was despised. He was hated. He was on the fringe. If you were Steven Spielberg and try to produce a movie with Zacchaeus in it, who would you get to play the part? I've always thought it should be Danny DeVito. (laughs) Don't you think? Short, bald, kind of fat, oily expression on his face. He's up there in this tree, but he doesn't really want anybody to see him. He wants to be able to see Jesus, but doesn't want anyone to see him. It's amazing that he's up there, probably children throwing rocks at him, adults throwing jabs at him, everybody taking their shot at him. And he thinks he's in a situation that is personal, that is pervasive, and that is permanent, except that he's heard about this guy named Jesus. People have talked about him being a miracle worker. Maybe he's the son of God. If I get a chance to see him, I wonder if he has the power that he could help me. And he wonders the next question, which, if he could help me, would he help me? In the state that I'm in, being the person that I am, not just could he help me, would he help me? And I think there's three truths that we can learn from this text that are applied to Zacchaeus, but I think that they can be more broadly applied to us because the 10th verse is, the Son of God came to seek and save the lost, not just Zacchaeus, but everybody who's lost back then and everybody who gets lost now, including us. So the first truth I think that gets displayed in this text is no matter how insignificant that you feel you are, Jesus notices you. In verse 5, it says Jesus is walking along. He stops right under the tree. He looks up and he says to Zacchaeus, Zacchaeus, he knows his name. He says, come down. I must eat with you today. I mean, Zacchaeus is up in this tree hoping people don't see him. He's trying to see Jesus. And now Jesus calls him out and everybody's staring at him. He's got to be a little bit like a spooked raccoon you know, up in the tree, just sitting there. Ever since Harvey hit a year ago, Sherry and I, who live at basically the corner of Gessner and Briar Forest in Woodlake Forest 4, our backyard has a tiny stream in it that ends up feeding into Buffalo Bayou. But ever since Harvey, we've had five raccoons. And that raccoons, where we sit to watch TV, there's a, there's a uh, window to the left, and you can see them come down a tree, one, two, three, four, five, and then they go down into the bayou area, they hunt and get water for a while, and then they come hour and a half back, one, two, three, four, five. About a month ago, I was trying to fix something on our roof, and I looked across, and I saw that there was a hole in my neighbor's roof, that the, that's where the raccoons were living. 
So I told our, our neighbor, you've got at least five raccoons. And the wife said, I've been telling my husband that I hear something up in the attic and he's not believing me. And I said, you've got raccoons. And so they've been trapping them and, and sending them out, but there's still one that has stayed. And it, they go down to get the food, but, but my wife Sherry likes uh, bird feeders, and we have one on our deck uh, overlooking that area, and if she forgets to bring the feeder back in, they like to eat the bird seed, and it's a, one of those feeders that's supposed to protect you from squirrels and raccoons, but they can get all the feed, and so Sherry will see them to the right eating on the feed, and she'll, she'll go out there, and she'll open the door, and she'll go, get away from there. Those are for the birds, and she'll, she'll go like that. And the raccoon will just go like that. She goes, I can see you. I can see you. Go away. <laughs> and there's Zacchaeus up there like this. Jesus says, everybody can see you. Come on down. I'm going to your house. We're going to eat together. And that was shocking. Everybody else had written Zacchaeus off. No one wanted to have anything to do with Zacchaeus. And Jesus notices him and hangs out with him. There's a quote that I came across this week that's anonymous, but it seems to fit right here. There is so much good in the worst of us and so much bad in the best of us that it makes no sense for any of us to smugly dismiss the rest of us. Jesus does not dismiss him. Jesus does not dismiss you and me. And so we must not dismiss those people who Christ eats with, notices, cares about. The second truth is no matter what people say about you, Christ affirms your basic worth. Let me see if I can explain this. Jesus calls Zacchaeus Zacchaeus, which doesn't seem that big of a deal, but everybody knew their name. Everybody knows what our names mean. Zacchaeus literally in Greek means pure one, righteous one. He calls him a name that he's not. He's a crook. He's a nefarious character. He's a bad man. In many people's mind, he's unforgivable. He's in an irreconcilable relationship far apart from God. And Jesus calls him Zacchaeus by his name. Not who he is at the moment, but what he could be with God's help. That's not atypical for God. In the Old and the New Testament, it happens all the time. Remember Jacob in the Old Testament, the Hebrew means usurper or deceiver. He's a bad guy. He gets renamed by God, Israel, who's the father of the 12 tribes of Israel. In the New Testament, there's Simon, who while he's still having trouble, Jesus renames him Peter, which literally in Greek is rocky. He names him rock, solid. When he's not solid, he names him that. Saul is persecuting the church. He gets a new name, Paul. Apostle sent one. Isn't it great that it's not just our faith in God that matters, but God's faith in us that matters? In fact, it's God's faith in us that makes our faith in God possible. We have to know we're loved and accepted before we can accept our acceptance. God says yes to us. That's the first move. And then we say yes back. That's our response. 
Our naming of people matters. Our, what we call our kids, our friends, our, our parents, it matters. When our son Matt, who's 27 now, was a kid, when he'd play sports, we, we'd seen the movie Gladi- Gladiator together, and so he liked that movie. And when he, when he was getting ready to go out on the basketball court or the football field or the soccer field, um, I would say to him, okay, go get him, Maximus. Matt, Maximus, you know, a combination of that, just to let him know you're a gladiator. It's going to be okay. We have a lot of people in our family that are musical and uh, parents, grandparents who are musicians, band directors. And so Matt had piano lessons and then he played French horn. He wasn't especially excited about his piano lessons. And so when he'd get ready to go to a lesson, I'd call him Matt's art. Mozart, Matt's Matt. You know, just trying to pump him up just a little bit. Matt's art. Um, What do you call people? I mean, are the names you call people, are they affirming? Do do they tear people down? Do they build them up? And if someone has a name that they're not living up to, can you keep calling them that until they begin to live into their name? The third truth is that no matter what you've done, Jesus still wants you and has a purpose, a mission for your life. When Jesus asked Zacchaeus to come down, he went to his house. All the people that were in the crowd started grumbling that here's a sinner. How could, how could Jesus want that person? He's done terrible things. He's precluded from being used by God by what he's done. Everyone assumed. But that's not how Jesus saw it. Are there things that you're carrying around that are a weight on your back or shoulders? We cannot change the past. We can't. But we can learn from it. We can repent of it. We can receive forgiveness for it. And we can move forward in response to what Christ has done for us. Our past doesn't have to define us. It didn't define Zacchaeus. I'll give people back half of what I own. That goes to the poor. And if I've ripped anybody off, I'll give four times as much. He was beginning to change right in response to Jesus um, knowing his name, affirming him, calling the best out of him. You know, in the 1950s up through the 90s, you could build a church and people would just show up. If you build it, they will come. You have a great program, people will just show up. It's what we call the attractional church. Those days are gone. People aren't just going to show up because you've got something good. People aren't just going to come to you because you've got a good program for them. But it actually makes sense that Jesus, when he came, he, he... incarnated himself into the world. He pitched his tent in the neighborhood. He missionally moved toward the mess and the muck. He entered it. And that's where so many of the mission partners in this room reside. I don't know if this is true for everyone, but it just feels like today I have a burden on my heart, something prophetic or encouraging to say that if, if you're at the end of your rope, if you feel like giving up, if helping hurting people is very hard and, and they're hurting you, 
don't give up. You're right where you're supposed to be. Because Jesus went where the lost were. You're right where the lost are. And we must, as a church, continue to not just come here, being all in is being all out there in our neighborhoods, around Harvey, with our, with our workmates, where the greatest needs in the community are. I was reading this last week that on February 19th of 1519, the Spanish explorer Cortez started to go to Mexico. He had 11 ships. He had 13 horses. There were 110 sailors. There were 553 soldiers. And the indigenous people in Mexico at that time is about 5 million people. The two groups that had gone before to set up uh, settlements there hadn't even made a settlement on the beach. And so Cortez, with these 11 ships, comes, and he ends up in Mexico, and they get on the beach, and then he orders this, burn all the ships. They burned the 11 ships. No chance to retreat. It was plan A. There was no plan B. We're all in, in this place. And they colonized much of Mexico and much of Central and South America because there was no other alternative. Now, if you can compartmentalize the moral conundrum of colonization, (laughs) I think there's a message that we have to be so all in, which is being all out there, that we don't have a plan B. And if you're tired because the computers don't work and you're not seeing fruit right now, stay the course. Persevere. God maybe has you exactly where you're supposed to be and there's something right around the corner that's going to turn this for the positive. So that's one thing I want to say right now. The other thing I want to say is maybe you've forgotten the why of what you're doing. When you started this, it all made sense. We're going to have a camp for inner city kids and we're going to introduce them to Jesus Christ or we're going to give food to the people that are hungry or on and on and on and on. And then you've just gotten into all the administrative and the corporate stuff and the zoning here and the requirements there and OSHA that. And you forgot even why you're doing what you're doing. Several years ago, my dad and I were uh, driving, and we were at a hotel in Hickson, Tennessee. And my dad and I, when we'd go into a hotel, my dad would always go to the place, the the, um, place in between the two beds where there was a, a, a dresser, and he'd open it up, and he'd take out the Gideon Bible, and he'd always go like this to it. He'd open it up. And I go, why are you opening up the Gideon Bible? And he said, well, when I was going down to basic training in Mississippi when I was a young man, I saw a Gideon Bible and I opened it up and there was $20 in it. <laughs> so every hotel my dad goes into up until he died in, at the end of December, he opened the Bible to see if there was any money in it. Now, every time I go into a hotel, I open the Gideon Bible just to see 
if anybody else has put $20 or $100 in the Bible. But when we were in Hickson, Tennessee, he opened the drawer, and there was a Gideon Bible, and on top of the Gideon Bible was a sheet of paper, and on top of the sheet of paper was this bullet, a 45 automatic bullet. And I said, what's that? And he said, I don't know. And he looked at the, the shell, and it was an intact shell, and he, he looked at this piece of paper, and it's from the Hampton Inn. I don't think they do this anymore, but it, it says, greetings, traveler. In ancient times, there was a prayer for the stranger within our gates. Because this motel is a human institution to serve people and not solely a money-making organization, we hope that God will grant you peace and rest while under our roof. May this room and motel be your second home. May those you love be near you in thoughts and dreams. I won't read it all, but we are all travelers from birth till death. We travel between the eternities. May these days be pleasant for you, profitable for society, helpful to those you meet, and a joy to those who know and love you best. Isn't that a beautiful prayer by a hotel chain? My dad and I started to think what happened to the people who were there right before us. We said it was probably a a solo person. It's probably a man, but who knows? And we think the person came to the hotel to hurt themselves, that they were going to take their life. And then they read this prayer, and they didn't. And maybe opened the Gideon Bible in the back and looked at those different things when you're this, when you're anxious, look here and here's the plan of salvation and here's how Jesus loves you. And so they put this on top of the Gideon Bible and they put this on top of the sheet and they left and my dad and I found it. I don't know exactly what your specific not-for-profit or corporation's mission statement is, but I know this is part of our why. There are so many people drowning in sin who are focused on death, who are stuck in anger, who are suffering in isolation. And you've been called to go there for them. And for Zacchaeus, he learned that what was negative and personal and pervasive and permanent was positive, personal. Jesus knew his name. And pervasive, he had a community. You're part of Abraham's clan. And that it was permanent. Nothing can separate us from the love of God in Christ Jesus our Lord. that the Son of Man came to seek and save the lost. He went into the muck for us so that we could return the favor for others. If we're not doing that as a church, we're not the church. And if you're not doing that in your organization, You're not fulfilling your mission. Are you all in? Which means you're all out. 
because Christ is the all in all. Amen.